Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. For the first time in the history of the Understanding Edge podcast, we're breaking a session into two separate podcasts. Both sessions will feature the International Equity Research Team at Diamond Hill, and they offered such intriguing insight into their markets and the coverage universe that we need two episodes to cover it all. This first episode will cover an overview of the research team members, the investment philosophy of the strategy, and the role currency may or may not play in the management process. Some of us are recording remotely still, so I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy this first episode, offering an introduction to Diamond Hill's International Equity Research Team and some insights into their process and coverage areas. Jandor, Chris, Andy Ting, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Uh, Usually I provide background and history on our guests during the opening of the podcast, but I thought that since this is an introduction to the International Equity Research Team, that it would be best if you each take a moment to introduce yourselves and provide us with your background. So I'll kick it over to you guys and let you run with it. Yeah, so I'm Chris. Um, I've joined Diamond Hill coming up on five years ago now. Um, And I, uh, like others on on the team, I'm a generalist. Um, So I spend a lot of, but I do spend a lot of my time in the consumer, industrial, and uh, technology space. Uh, So I guess if I had to pick a concentration, um, I suppose it would be that. Um, But prior to coming to Diamond Hill, um, I spent a couple of years at a international Um, in an international analyst position right out of my MBA program. So I was fortunate to join a firm that had a pretty long track record and a successful track record at that um, in practicing intrinsic value investing um, in the international markets over time. So it was a great learning experience for me. Um, There were a ton of things that I that I took away from that and still kind of use in my in my process today. Um, But prior to that, you know, I was mostly focused on uh, domestic, so U.S.-based investing. So um, over that experience, I guess, combined, um, I guess what I've learned the most is that uh, the the differences between or there's there's more similarities than there are differences between investing in international markets and and the domestic side. So there are, of course, uh, some nuances and some things that need to be accounted for. Um, and incorporated into the process, but I think for the most part, um, right, the, the the process is the same. So what we try to do at Diamond Hill is value businesses on using a DCF, and so we're forecasting free cash flows out for a number of years, um, and then discounting those back to today. And so that part is is similar, and that's the same process that we apply to the international markets. But like I said, there are a few nuances um, in the international markets that are important, I think, to uh, incorporate us into some inputs into that process. And so um, I think, you know, over time, just figuring out what those different nuances are, you know, how to account for them in the valuation process. And then probably just as importantly is, uh, you know, being able to normalize, you know, whatever adjustments you make. Um, across different holdings within the portfolio to keep things on a consistent basis, you know, so when we form a portfolio of best ideas then we can evaluate, you know, certain certain ideas relative to others and and weight them appropriately. So um, I think developing that skill set, I mean, I think that takes, you know, some time and some experience. 
Um, and then also just a level of, you know, self-awareness and, um, and emotional intelligence really to kind of, you know, build that up and, and be sensitive to different, different cultures and the way different management teams act. I mean, these things are, are different across different markets. So, you know, just for example, um, you know, these things can have a, have a big impact on, on our valuation assessments. If, you know, if we're not adjusting and accounting for those properly. So, you know, things like capital allocation or, you know, management incentives and, and really, you know, things like how different cultures view corporations and, you know, their responsibility to, um, to create shareholder value, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things at all. So these things vary to different degrees and different cultures. And so I do think it's important to kind of, you know, develop a sense of uh, being aware of those and incorporating those into our process. And so, like I said, I think this is something that just comes over time with experience. And I think that's both, you know, it's probably both a barrier to entry to investing in international markets and also one of the competitive advantages that I think we have on our team here at Diamond Hill. Uh, when I look across, most, most of our team members have spent, you know, an extended amount of time um, of their adult life, at least, you know, outside of, of the U.S. culture. And for many, you know, the United States isn't even, uh, isn't even the home, the, the, their native culture. So um, I think coming from that angle and being aware of different cultures, having lived that and experienced that, I think that's easier to kind of get up to speed and interpret, you know, the right information that we receive from companies internationally, um, as opposed to kind of trying to start that from scratch um, with, you know, solely a domestic lens. So uh, that's one of the things that I think is, uh, is key for our team here at Diamondville. Thanks, Chris. Um, I can follow up really quickly. So this is Eating Lu speaking. Um, just a little background on myself. So I was actually born and raised in China and uh, emigrated with my family to the U.S. in high school. So I was actually really lucky to have spent uh, a good chunk of my adolescence as well as my adulthood in both countries. And I totally agree with what Chris said. I think it helps me to appreciate the different perspectives of the two different culture or the two different countries. Um, but after receiving my kind of um, uh, bachelor's education here in the US, I started my first job in actually New York City on the investment banking side. And later on, actually followed uh, my roots back to Asia, since I'm originally from there, and worked on the sell side research covering mostly Asian financials out of Hong Kong for about five years. And then uh, having spent a good number of years living and working in Hong Kong, I eventually made my way back to the U.S. and luckily landed a good job here at Diamond Hill. Um, sitting in the U.S., but getting to invest internationally. So that's kind of a, a quick summary of my education and professional background. And here at Diamond Hill, I cover uh, a little bits of everything. So I mostly cover financials, excluding insurance. Um, so Krishna on our team has a very strong background in insurance. So he's the one who covers insurance, but I cover all ex-insurance financials globally, ex-U.S., uh, China internet names, global luxury players and uh, some kind of miscellaneous uh, quirky industries such as death care. So those are just the little bits of coverage here and there um, that I just, you know, threw out uh, in terms of uh, my coverage here at Diamond Hill. This is Chandler Virapan. So um, thank you for the introduction uh, for, for our team from Chris and Eating. So I grew up in India, I was born in India. I spent a little bit of time in Southeast Asia 
and I decided that America was the place I wanted to come and get my education in the sciences. I'm essentially a, a science geek uh, that landed into finance. So I spent the first uh, 10, 15 years, you know, um, getting an education in the sciences, have a background in computer science. Um, and then I got some experience in bioinformatics. And this is when the human genome was getting sequenced. There's a lot of activity there. So I jumped into that with my science background and then eventually got a PhD in uh, genetics and molecular biology. And eventually I went on to get a, a, a master's in business. And the reason why I went to master's in business is just that when you're a scientist for about, I don't know, I think I spent about 10 years trying to write grants <laughs> to, to, uh, to attract capital towards what it is that I'm trying to do. And I was always fascinated by the process where you ask for capital and the capital allocators then decide if your project is worthwhile and they allocate some money to you. To me, that sounded a lot like finance. And that's what my friends are saying. Oh yeah, this is just like finance. So why don't you learn more about finance? So I started reading the CFA prep book and just started getting into finance and I was just hooked. So that's how I ended up in uh, uh, at Diamond Hill. So I started seven years ago. Um, the first five years, I was a domestic biopharma uh, analyst. And for the past two years, I've been focusing on ex-US healthcare. And one of the things that's super exciting about ex-US healthcare is just the scope of what healthcare can do for people around the world. You know, um, the unmet medical need that's out there is tremendous. There are so many uh, markets and people who are just human, human beings just like us, but don't have the access to healthcare. And for those markets, you know, they are beginning to grow, they're beginning to mature. And in the next 20, 30 years, these are the markets that are going to drive growth in healthcare, be it utilization or innovation. They're both happening at the same time. So, and with all the paradigm shifts we've seen in medicine over the last 20, 25 years, especially the life sciences, I think it's a very exciting time to be in the healthcare space um, as part of the international team. Well, that's great information, guys. I really appreciate all of that, all the insight into how we think about things. So <clears throat> full disclosure, I cover US-based fixed income. So currency never really comes up. Uh, whereas with your team, I'm sure it comes up quite often. So let's talk about that. So how does the team think about currency exposure and what steps, if any, do you take to adjust for it? Um, maybe Doug, I, I can take that first and then uh, my teammates can jump in in case I missed anything. So uh, just, uh, just for our audience, um, here at Diamond Hill for the international strategy, we actually leave the um, hedging decision, whether it's hedge or not hedge, the underlying currency to our end clients. So we, Diamond Hill, do not, does not hedge um, our currency exposure for the international portfolio, so just, uh, just FYI. And then uh, we make that conscious decision because of several things, and I'll just mention a few. Um, one, actually studies have shown that in the short term, currency moves or volatilities are actually really extremely difficult to forecast accurately and consistently. So that probably reduces the case for short-term currency hedging because it's really hard to get them right consistently in an accurate manner. So that's point number one. Point number two, long-term currency hedging 
can be more effective for certain asset class. And actually international fixed income asset class um, oftentimes is, 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 is cited as an asset class that is more conducive, more effective in terms of underlying currency hedging. Um, whereas for international equities asset class um, is less effective. And honestly, over very long periods of time, studies have shown that the difference between uh, the, the return difference between a currency hedged portfolio versus a currency unhedged portfolio for an international equities portfolio, there's very little delta between the two. Um, so over a long period of time, it honestly doesn't matter. And then lastly, I mean, currency hedging is just not free. So there are certain costs associated with it. Companies that we invest in sometimes hedge currencies themselves, right? And we do not know exactly based on disclosure what's their true underlying currency exposure. So it's hard for us as Diamond Hill to hedge when we don't even know 100% for sure our underlying currency exposure in the portfolio given some of the companies that we own hedge themselves. But we don't know exactly how much, what currency they hedge, et cetera. So for all those reasons combined, that's why we don't actually hedge our currency exposure for the international portfolio. But that said, uh, how do we kind of take that into consideration when we are investing internationally? Um, I think it doesn't matter if it's currency headwind for a particular company or even like cost inflation headwind for a particular company. At the end of the day, it's about the company's ability to pass those on, right? So a particular company that is well positioned and has pricing power to offset that or to maybe even more than offset that headwind is, is basically the type of company that we find very valuable. So an example would be, I cover, as I said, some of the global luxury players, right? Think of like LVMH or Richmond, which owns the Cartier brand. These players have done this historically where they've experienced certain currency headwind in certain markets, but because the strong demand for their brands and products, they were able to offset that a little bit with increase in prices of certain brands or certain products in certain markets. So that has happened historically before for those luxury players. And then also, you know, like there are certain business models out there, not always, but there are certain business models out there that offers a little bit of a natural um, hedge against currency uh, depreciation. So for example, I, we used to own like a Mexican airport uh, that owned the concession right to run the Cancun airport. When the underlying currency of that airport operator, when it depreciated, which is uh, Mexican peso, well, a lot of foreign tourists actually want to take advantage of the depreciation of uh, Mexican, Mexican peso currency depreciation. So they flock in to Mexico, they flock in to Cancun. So you get a higher number of passenger traffic or passenger volume uh, when me Mexican peso depreciate. So it actually drives your top line growth, actually boosts your top line revenue. So that's just one example of some of the natural hedges that are being built in to some of the business models that offers a little bit of a natural hedge.
So just some examples there. Um, uh, so that's my perspective. I don't know if my colleagues has anything extra to add there. Yeah, I mean, I think Eating made some really good points there. Um, I think just overall, you know, taking a step back and generally speaking, um, in international investing, right, there's, there's a number of different ways, a couple of main ones really, where, you know, currency fluctuations can, you know, have an impact on, uh, on investment outcomes. So the first is, I think you could, you could label them under the company level. So, you know, different companies that have international operations, you know, for example, will have a translation impact. So at the end of the reporting period, you know, a company that is domiciled in, in whatever country, say Europe, for example, that has operations in the U.S., They'll take those sales and earnings that they've earned in the U.S. and have to translate those back into euros, their home company, you know, reporting statement. So, you know, just that impact itself can have, you know, a positive or a negative outcome on uh, on the company's financial statements. Um, the other way within the company level is, you know, of course, transaction based uh, currency movements. And that's, you know, if you take, you know, that, that same example of a European company, who has operations in the United States, you know, that the, the United States customer for is going to compensate the European company uh, for their services or goods or what, what have you in uh, a different currency. So just the, the timing impact of, you know, receiving United States dollars, translating those back into euros um, can also have an impact on, you know, a company's uh, financial statements for that reporting period. So, you know, at the company level, companies will, management teams will take a stance and some will try to hedge that exposure, both for translation and transaction. Some will, um, you know, choose not to do that, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they have a, a diversified enough, um, you know, earning stream where, you know, the, the positives uh, offset the negatives. But I think what's important and interesting maybe to, you know, just from the investing standpoint and sort of, you know, from a client's perspective and what we do as international investors is the, the other way that it shows up currency movements is at the portfolio level. So, you know, just mechanically, you know, as U.S.-based investors, we have U.S. dollars and we're making investments in foreign companies, right, in, in different countries that transact on different exchanges that have different currencies. So, you know, for example, you know, when we want to buy one of our portfolio holdings is Tesco, which is a, you know, United, United Kingdom uh, retail grocer. So in order to buy it, that trades on a London stock exchange. So in order to buy shares of Tesco, we had to take our United States dollars, translate those into British pounds, and then purchase the stock in British pounds on the exchange. So, you know, that's, that's good. But then when it comes time to exit the position, you know, we're going to have to unwind that, translate our, our British pounds back into U.S. dollars, and that itself can also have, you know, an impact to investors' returns, um, you know, based on, the, based on the movement between the, the dollar and the pound. So um, these things that you could take a, you know, you basically have, when you, when you make these types of investments, you basically have uh, two sort of return uh, situations on it at, the, at one time. So one is, you know, just based on the on the company's performance, you know, whether the stock price goes up or down and then the dividends that are received. So there's a return from that. And then that second piece is the return from the currency itself, um, you know, just based on the on the on the currency pair movement over the investment time period, which, again, could be positive or negative. So, 
you know, us as a international strategy, we have a decision to whether, you know, at the portfolio level, we have, you know, several different investments in several different countries with several different, you know, currency exposures on at one time, we can either, you know, elect to hedge those with, you know, there's various different ways to do that, or we can choose not to. Um, and then as Eating said, there's a lot of pluses and minuses to, to both, but we think, you know, over time that, like like Eating said, there's a cost, you know, involved with hedging. Uh, it's difficult, you know, to kind of get those right for, you know, often. Um, and then, as she mentioned, you know, over longer periods of time, you know, decades plus, ten years plus, um, you know, the these movements related to the currency, you know, tend to be de minimis in, in terms of, you know, comparing to what the local currency return was. So, you know, for these reasons, we've decided to. To not hedge the uh, the the currency exposure that we have, um, you know, on the investment strategy. So I think that's that's another interesting point to add. Yeah. So I mean, one example that I could add, at least on the healthcare side, is I mean, we own several global uh, pharma companies. You know, we have GSK, Roche, and Novartis in our portfolio. And if you look at the translation, the transaction and translation effects of these companies, it's actually very difficult to model, even if you try to. So if you, if you look at the annual reports, these companies run dozens of subsidiaries in different countries and different markets. And these, these companies try to balance out the receivables and payables in that local currency or in that foreign currency. So they do a lot of these transactions and it's actually on a practical basis, pretty difficult uh, to model that on a quarter to quarter basis. So it just gives you an illustration of these companies that, that earn revenues in excess of 30 billion, 40 billion, 50 billion dollars. And then they have small revenue streams coming from these different markets that makes it pretty tricky to model it, even if you try to do so. My thanks to Yiting, Chris, and Chendor for participating in this first part of my discussion with the International Equity Research Team. Be sure to catch the second episode when we dig into the estimation of intrinsic value while accounting for currency cultural differences in various regulatory environments, as well as emerging and frontier markets and the impact of the shift in central banking around the globe. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.